0: And he talks about coming to the Bible with an open mind, not with a preconceived notion about what it can and cannot say to us, and to be willing to think brand new thoughts. And in doing so, I've really been challenged by the book of Ephesians and its main message to us. I grew up in this individualistic society, I've lived and breathed individualism from the time I've been born. But understanding that all the you's in Ephesians are y'alls really changes it up. My favorite passage in Ephesians is Ephesians three, fourteen through twenty one, where Paul prays that you would be able to comprehend the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. But it's not a prayer for me as an individual, but for us as a corporate body, his body, the church. Revelation 7-9, I looked again, I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there, all nations and tribes, all races and languages, and they were standing dressed in white robes and waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the Lamb and heartily singing, salvation to our God and his throne, salvation to the Lamb. So imagine being part of this crowd, like being with others at a worship concert, or I imagine when the youth were at this Collide. There's a sense of awe of being part of something much bigger than yourself, united in worship. I can see what that gives one a greater comprehension of the love of God and the, the vast um, dimensions of his love. And His this love for us as the church isn't his... His love for his people isn't, doesn't mean white evangelical Christians. It's his body over the whole world, people very different than ourselves. Another way this corporate concept comes into play is that we can experience and comprehend his love through the agency of others, who other followers of Christ who are his hands and feet in showing us his love. So we're each individuals, each unique, bringing something unique to the world, but we're also part of something much bigger. We're individual parts of a whole, and we need to see ourselves that way. We weren't meant to do life alone. Even God, before creating us, didn't do life alone. There was the trin- There's the Trinity. He exists as the Trinity. So the Father loves the Son and loves the Holy Spirit, and And the Father and the Son have a mutual appreciation for the Holy Spirit. You have every kind of relationship within the Trinity. He needed to love and be loved, and we need to love and be loved. It's been a rough week. A week ago, last Sunday morning, I got a call telling me that my brother had taken his life. And so I asked the Lord, how do I process this? And how do I process this while trying to put together this message from Ephesians for this morning? I mean, the timing is his. And, and what do I do with this? And I realized that a person is much more apt to take their life if they isolate themselves in the sense of carrying their own heavy burdens. We aren't meant to do life alone. We have to see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. And Something my daughter-in-law mentioned, that when you think you can escape your personal pain by taking your life, you just redistribute the pain to others. Now, to understand the book of Ephesians, we have to start in Genesis with what I will call the fellowship of the five. We have the spirit. We have the father. We have the son. We have man and the woman. And here they are in perfect relationship. Just think, perfect relationship between the man and the woman. Face to face with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, able to, to walk together, talk together, discuss things together. They, there was a co-regency as they ruled over God's beautiful creation, the garden home. In this garden, in this garden home, the place of God and the place of man were the same place. They, they totally overlapped. And this is how it was until man and the woman decided that they could rule their own way, and they left their garden home. They left the place where heaven and earth were one. But God, those are such precious words. Having created man and the woman in his image for the purpose of having fellowship with them, he had a plan to restore that fellowship. And as a preview of his ultimate solution he set up a clean place for man and God to meet the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple and fashioned to remind them of their garden home fashioned with beauty and the Shekinah glory the, the pillar of light entered demonstrating his presence but in time the priests the intermediaries chose to do things their own way The people were exiled to Babylon. God's presence left the temple, and the temple was destroyed. And when the people returned to the land 70 years later after the exile, they rebuilt the temple, but God's presence never entered it. They cried. They knew his glory wasn't there. Thus, they looked forward to a future temple described by the prophet Ezekiel. But what God did was so totally different than what they expected, that many of them rejected it. The temple which brought heaven to earth was Jesus Christ himself, God's presence among us, Emmanuel. That's why he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And his message was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the mystery, once hidden, now revealed, which is the theme of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is about the revelation of Jesus Christ, revealing the mystery that is Jesus Christ, filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. He is the temple, and he dwells in and among his followers so that we become many temples. This is the, God's vision of the church, and at Pentecost, when the tongues of fire came upon them, it was a visual representation of the fact that his presence is in his church. This is where heaven and earth meet. Now, the garden home was beautiful, and great effort was made following God's design to make the tabernacle and the temple beautiful. And when the Hebrews wrote, they wrote carefully crafted something to be beautiful— and and the structure of Ephesians is is beautiful the first part of Ephesians is about this revelation of Jesus Christ and we being his temple and the second half is then how do how did, what does that look like when we put it into practice but we are presently in Ephesians 1 through 3 and it has a beautiful symmetry we have it's like a reflection we have it, Ephesians 1 begins with a victory song, and Ephesians 3 ends with a doxology song. Then a prayer follows the victory song, and just before the doxology song, there's another prayer. And then in chapter 2, the mystery is revealed. And then at the first part of chapter 3, the messenger of the mystery, Paul. And then our eyes are brought to the focus, the crux, which is actually our passage uh, it's the fact that the temple is made up of those of us who are in Christ. So our passage, Ephesians two eleven through 22. And in v- order to avoid hearing just what you expect to hear, it's helpful to read the passage in a different version. So I've chosen one of my favorites, the Message Bible. And Paul is speaking to the non-Jewish believers, and he's just gotten finished telling them, God brought you from death to life. And then he goes on, but don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this, didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, You who were once out of it all together are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together in this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people, separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all irrespective of how we got here and what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. The word of God for the people of God. We, the body of Christ, the people of God, are this temple where Christ dwells, where he makes his home in the world. The church isn't a building, it isn't a business, it's not an organization, but it's an organism made up of each person who is in Christ, who has chosen to follow Christ, and who takes his identity from Christ. Our primary identity is not our gender, our race, our status in society, our profession. Our primary identity is Christ. And this is stunning and amazing. The restoration has begun. These divisions, century old, are dissolved. It was radical, revolutionary, and God had such a sense of humor because he chose Paul, Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, and made him the apostle to the Gentiles. And if Paul could completely readjust his perspective, so can any of us adjust whatever perspective we need to readjust. Let's look at several other passages describing who we are, our new identity. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is... We are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Also, since you are Christ's family, then you are Abraham's famous descendant, heirs according to the covenantal promises. And then in Colossians 3, 9 through 11, don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item... Of your new way of life is custom made by the Creator with His label on it. And all the fashions in the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. And so, I asked myself, where can I see this modeled? What does this look like? In my own experience, uh, I have a good picture of what it doesn't look like. For decades, we were trapped in a quote, unquote, Bible church, which could properly be labeled a cult, because the leader attempted to keep us in fear, control every aspect of our lives for his own benefit, isolated us from other groups so he could more readily continue his abuse, told us that we were better than others If you weren't one of us, you were inferior, us versus them. One of the first steps to getting free was breaking out of the isolation, the echo chamber, and having contact with others. I just last week happened upon an uh, episode from a documentary series with Morgan Freeman called Us and Them. There was a fascinating example. He was interviewing a man who had spent many years of his life reaching out to people who hated him because of the color of his skin. He had a room in his house that was full of KKK uniforms from people that he had reached out to, successfully befriended, and they had given him their uniforms to symbolize giving up their lives of hatred and of changing their identity. In an attempt to wrap my mind about what it looks like to live out this concept Paul's communicating, I read a historical fiction written by a New Testament scholar on the early church. It's called The Lost Letters of Pergamon. And in it, he describes how there was this gathering, and there were men, women, slave, free, upper class, lower class, Jew, non-Jew, and they were all eating at the same table. And for a Roman that happened into the gathering it was like this is dangerous to our society because they were eating together they were making friends with one another so the unity we have in Christ of our identity coming from Christ isn't from any human category and that makes it truly unique just this morning um, that what came across my news feed was an interview with um, Russell Moore he had He was someone in leadership uh, with the Southern Baptist Church for quite some time before he resigned because of how they handled the sexual abuse there. And he wrote a book called uh, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. And we understand that the church in America is in trouble. And there was just this paragraph I thought just perfectly described. He says, almost every part of American life is tribalized and fractionalized, but it shouldn't be that way in the church. The very existence of the church is to mean a group of people who are reconciled to God and to each other, and from the very beginning was standing apart from those sort of factions. And so I think if we're going to get past the blood and soil sorts of nationalism or all the other kinds of totalizing cultural identities, it's going to require rethinking what the church is. And I don't think that's something new. I think it's very old. I think it's recovering a first century understanding of what it means to be the church. And I just thought, well, that was so what I had just read in this book. Identity is really a big issue in life. Who you see yourself to be. You can't consistently behave in a way different than who you see yourself to be. On a personal basis, if if you see yourself as a rotten sinner, a failure, well, then why even try? You're not really going to live above that. If you recognize who God made you to be and who he says you are in Christ, that changes everything. You're no longer a sinner. You're a saint who, in the now and not yet, still sin, but you have a new identity. Corporately, if you see yourself as part of an elite group of separatists better than others, you will treat others than less than. But if you see yourself as part of the worldwide body of Christ followers, diverse, but united by our love for Christ, you can see each person through God's eyes as fellow bricks in his temple, or the analogy I will use as flowers in his garden home. So to to summarize, God's plan is for heaven and earth to be unified, mankind and the Trinity in perfect communion and fellowship. That's where it began in the garden, and that's where it will end in the eternity But in the present, there is a place where heaven and earth meet. And this is what Ephesians is all about. The mystery revealed, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven being proclaimed as being at hand, the new temple or garden home, the presence of Christ through God's people. We as his body are to bring the light and beauty of his presence into our environment on earth. And I know from my own experience that the church has not always done that. But that is what God designed it to do. There's a song called Wedding Day by Casting Crowns, probably from 10 years ago. And I'll just read a few of the lyrics. This is when Jesus Christ, as the bridegroom, comes back um, for his bride, the church. There's a stirring in the throne room and all creation holds its breath. Waiting now to see the bridegroom, wondering how the bride will dress. And she wears white. And she knows she's undeserving. She bears the shame of history. But this worn and weary maiden is not the bride that he sees. And she wears white, head to toe. But only he could make it so. When someone dries your tears, when someone wins your heart and says you're beautiful when you don't know you are. And all you've longed to see is written on his face when love has come and finally set you free on that wedding day. She has danced in golden castles and she has crawled through beggar's dust, but today she stands before him and she wears his righteousness and she will be who he adores. And this is is what he made her for. And he says, y'all are beautiful. This is your identity as his bride. Heaven invades earth through y'all. Each of us is a flower in his garden home, designed to bring his presence and his beauty into the world. And so I would like whoever was going to pass out the flowers for me to, Um, to bring the, the vases around and just each person take at least one flower. Last year, I put a few flowers in my garden in the backyard along with some vegetables. And our backyard is on a corner lot and it's got a long sidewalk next to it. And behind us is a, is a pathway. So countless people walk by my backyard. And so many people commented on the flowers last year. And so God was working at shifting my thinking from utilitarian, I have to grow things that I can eat, to recognizing the value in beauty. So this year I planted more flowers. Right now you can't really see that there's anything but flowers in it. And um, that's a picture of my garden. And I have a liturgy from Every Moment Holy. Some of you might be familiar with it because it's in the church library. And there was this amazing liturgy on planting flowers. And I am hopeful that it will bring us to the place of awe with respect to our identity as the body of Christ. As I read, gaze on the beauty of the flower you hold, think of yourself as that flower. God calls you, as part of his body on earth, beautiful. You all bring God's presence and beauty into the world. Last fall, I put manure on the garden, and flowers know what to do with manure that's thrown at them. They bloom bigger and brighter. So if it's been a rough week, you can ponder that as well. Be in awe of the flower. Be in awe that he calls us beautiful. Be in awe of who you are as an individual and as part of something bigger than yourself. In a world shadowed by cruelty, violence, and loss, is there a good reason for the planting of flowers? Ah, yes. For these bursts of color and beautiful blooms are bright dabs of grace, witnesses to a promise, reminders of a spreading beauty, more eternal and therefore stronger than any evil, than any grief, than any injustice or violence. What is the source of their beauty? From whence does it spring? The forms of these flowers are the intentional designs of a creator who has not abandoned his broken and rebellious creation, but has instead wholly given himself to the work of redeeming it. He has scattered the evidences of creation's former glories across the entire scape of heaven and earth. And these evidences are also foretastes of the coming redemption of all things, that those who live in this hard time between glories might see and remember, might see and take heart, might see and take delight in the extravagant beauty of bud and bloom, knowing that these living witnesses are rumors and reminders of a joy that will soon swallow all sorrow. In the planting of these flowers, do we join the creator in his work of heralding this impending joy? Yes, in this and in all labors of beauty and harmony, praise and consolations, We become God's co-workers and faithful citizens of his kingdom by acts both small and great, bearing witness to the perfect beauty that was, to the ragged splendor that yet is, and to the hope of the greater glory that is to come, which is the immeasurable glory of God revealed to us in the redeemed nature of all things. What then is the eternal weight of these flowers? Though our eyes yet strain to see it, these tiny seeds, bulbs, or velvet buds we have planted are more substantial than all the collected evils of this groaning world. Their color and beauty speak a truer word than all greed and cruelty and suffering and harm." What is the truer word spoken by these flowers? They are like a banner planted on a hilltop, proclaiming God's right ownership of these lands long unjustly claimed by tyrants and usurpers. They are a warrant and a witness, each blossom shouting from the earth that death is a lie, that beauty and immortality are what we were made for. They are heralds of a restoration that will forever mend all sorrow and comfort all grief. They declare a kingdom of peace, of righteousness, of joy, of love, and of the great rejoining of justice and mercy into a splendid perfection in the person of a king whose amaranthine wonders eternally upwell, beautiful beyond the grasp of human imagination. How will these brief blooms accomplish such mighty labors? What grace will sustain them? Because their work is so great, we pray, O Father, your blessing on these small flowers. May their roots work deep, finding rich soil, May their leaves and buds be wakened by gentle sun, watered by ample rain. May the strength of their fragile beauty and bloom give pause to passerbys, who will meet in their sweet scent and radiant forms, whisperings of grace, stirrings of the spirit, and the awakenings of eternal hungers that can be met and satisfied only in you. Let these flowers, O Lord, bear witness in their deepest natures to eternal things. Let our lives also, O Lord, do the same. Amen. Will you join me in sing the doxology?